Jingle Update Show. Hello, and welcome to the return of the Barley Snyder Legal Update podcast. Barley Snyder is a full-service business law firm with well over 100 attorneys practicing out of offices in central Pennsylvania and Maryland. My name is Joshua Schwartz, and I am a guest host of the Barley Snyder Legal Update podcast. I'm a partner with Barley Snyder's litigation, education, and employment practice groups, working primarily in employment counseling, discrimination, labor, and workers' compensation. Before we get started, please, listeners, understand that the information provided during episodes of Barley Snyder's Legal Update podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or as a substitute for legal counsel. Nothing in this podcast is intended to create an attorney-client relationship. If you have questions about your legal situation, you should consult an attorney for assistance. The world of legal compliance in education keeps shifting as different administrations alter the Title IX regulations or interpret them in different ways. Title IX, of course, is part of the Education Amendments of 1972 and prohibits sex-based discrimination in schools or education programs that receive funding from the federal government. Most recently, just last month, the current administration's Department of Education proposed new regulations that will likely shake up the regulatory landscape for colleges and universities again. To help us navigate through this mammoth 700-page document, I am so pleased to welcome David Friedman, chair of Barley Snyder's Education Practice Group and the regular host of this podcast. Friedman, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Josh. It's uh, great to be on this side of the microphone. So before we dig into this mammoth new regulation, can you tell us kind of how, how did we get here? Yeah, um, certainly, you know, as you stated in your introduction, um, Title IX was originally enacted in the 1970s. And for, you know, the first 25 or 30 years, there really was not much consideration given to colleges or universities' responsibilities under Title IX for responding to allegations of uh, sexual assault by or against their students. That began to change after a series of U.S. Supreme Court uh, cases in the late 1990s that kind of put colleges and universities on notice that they do have responsibilities to respond to those types of allegations. The U.S. Department of Education started letting colleges know that they were going to enforce those requirements starting around 2001, but it was still a pretty gray area. Things started to get really heated up around 2011 when the uh, U.S. Department of Education under President Barack Obama issued what the um, Department of Education calls a Dear Colleague letter that goes out essentially to all college presidents in the country uh, for colleges that receive federal funding, which is basically all colleges in the U.S. And that dear colleague letter put colleges on notice that the Obama administration was going to be very aggressive in enforcing Title IX with respect to colleges that fail to respond appropriately to allegations of uh, sexual assault, domestic violence, dating violence, and stalking that occur within those colleges' education programs or activities. 
There was a little bit of pushback against the Obama administration. I shouldn't say a little bit. There was a lot of pushback against the Obama administration saying that essentially this enforcement effort was depriving accused students of appropriate levels of due process. We kind of had sort of rushed to judgments that were occurring against certain students. There were some lawsuits that were filed and some of the court cases were were somewhat critical of the Obama administration. So then we go to 2016, Donald Trump wins the presidential election. He installs Betsy DeVos as the secretary of education and the DeVos Department of Education starts a process of trying to redo the rules with respect to Title IX and how it's applied at colleges and universities. That ultimately culminates in 2020 with a new set of regulations that were very comprehensive in nature and really sort of turned what had heretofore been considered an educational process dealing with student discipline at colleges and universities into a more formalistic legal process. And, you know, a lot of people did not like that. It has been very expensive for colleges and universities to implement these requirements over the past two years. So then in 2020, we have Joe Biden wins the presidential election. He comes in, uh, installs Miguel Cardona as the uh, secretary of education. And the Biden administration has now begun the process of sort of fine-tuning those regulations from uh, the Trump administration. But really, those fi- that fine-tuning is, is, is pretty significant in the differences that we're going to see. This resulted in the release of these new proposed regulations. And I emphasize proposed. These are not final regulations. They were first publicized or published on June 23rd, which was the 50-year anniversary of the enactment of Title IX. And so we've just kind of been making our way through these 700 pages of documents to figure out how it's going to affect colleges and universities moving forward. So take me through the highlights of what is in this, this proposed regulation. What do institutions have to do if, assuming that the regulations would be enacted? Yeah. So you know, we could obviously spend you know, hours unpacking all of the different things that are in these new proposed regulations and getting into all the minutiae. But I think there are three major themes that we should hit on. And that is that these proposed regulations, if they are finalized, end up having the force of law, are really going to expand the scope of institutions' responsibilities to respond to allegations of sex discrimination. That said, these regulations would also provide lots of flexibility for institutions in how they design their response to allegations. And I would also say the third component is there's going to be a lot of additional training that is going to be required from colleges to both their employees and their students. All right, that's great. That's a great framework by which we can talk about this. So let's let's break that down, if you don't mind. So the first one I wrote down from what you said was expanded scope of institutions' responsibilities. So when responding to allegations. So what do you mean by that? Sure. You know, first off, I think there's just more types of events that will require a response from the college. For example, the new proposed regulations make clear 
that to the extent that this was not clear earlier is that discrimination based on sex stereotypes about how men or women are typically perceived to their normal way of operating to the extent that there's discrimination based on failure to comply with those types of sex stereotypes. That is something the Department of Education would view as a Title IX matter that would require a response from a college university. Similarly, discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or pregnancy and parental status, those are going to be considered forms of sex-based discrimination that colleges and universities are going to have to respond to. There's also, you know, an expanded definition of programs or activities. The 2020 regulations that we're currently operating under essentially say for it to fall within the college's Title IX responsibilities, the event in question has to have either occurred on campus within a specific college program or activity and in the United States, in the geographic contours of the United States. Uh, under the new regulations, gonna, that's going to be expanded quite a bit. There was a lot of criticism of the DeVos administration's approach with respect to overseas conduct, including study abroad programs. And essentially, the DeVos administration was saying that those types of activities, to the extent that there's allegations of sex-based discrimination occurring there, that's outside of the, type, the college's Title IX required response. The Biden administration taking a much different approach. They're saying any time that a sex discrimination occurs that has an effect within the college's programs or activities, that's going to trigger a response from the institution. So if we're talking about overseas study abroad programs, if something happens outside of the United States, but then affects a student within the United States, let's say after the student returns from the program, then that is going to be something that the college or university is going to have to respond to. Similarly, with respect to off-campus activity that occurs within the United States, just because something happens off-campus, if there are on-campus ramifications from that, then college is going to have to respond. In fact, these new proposed regulations essentially link the college's Title IX responsibilities to the other areas in which the college decides to discipline students. So colleges should look at their internal policies now to say, okay, do we want to have them be this expansive? Because under the new regulations, if they're finalized, that's going to determine the scope of the college's responsibilities to Title IX incidents. So, you know, an example of this would be athletic programs that have code of conduct that apply to student athletes outside of the college. If you have those types of athletic code of conducts in place, that's going to also, uh, you're going to have the same sort of responsibilities to respond to Title IX events that occur uh, that would trigger those same types of code of conduct. So just to restate it to make sure I understand. So what you're saying is that if colleges are concerned that they might have an overly broad obligation under the new Title IX regulations, they might want to look at their current disciplinary policies and, and limit the scope even of what they can do under their other policies, like, for example, athletic programs. Yeah, I mean, I would say not necessarily that they should limit it. I would should say they should understand that if they have such expansive scope of their athletic code of conducts or, or other similar types of, of um, things, even a lot of student code of conducts will apply to folks through their activities outside of the college. That's fine. They just need to understand that they can't say, well, a Title IX incident happened outside the college and therefore we don't have a responsibility to respond to this. 
I'd also like to point out, Josh, that there's also under the new regulations an expanded definition of what constitutes covered sexual harassment. You know, under the current regulations that we're dealing with, when we're talking about things that are not sexual assault, not domestic violence, not dating violence, not stalking, you know, what we would call sort of standard sexual harassment, that is not something that the college needs to respond to under Title IX unless the allegations involve conduct that is so severe and pervasive and objectively unreasonable that it causes unequal treatment to the person who's the target of the conduct. Under the new regulations, if they come into effect, they're going to change that to severe or pervasive, because if you can have one event that is severe standing on its own, that's enough to trigger a response. And that's probably familiar to you as an employment lawyer, because of course, that is the standard that is used when we're evaluating whether an employer has had an appropriate response to sexual harassment. You look at whether that's severe or pervasive harassment. And that is something intentional from the Department of Education, because, of course, Title IX also applies to employees of you know, colleges and universities as well. So that would align Title IX and Title VII when it comes to how you analyze sexual harassment, right? Title VII being the employment statute and Title IX referring to educational programs. With respect to employees, yes, with respect to students, um, there can be a different set of responsibilities for the institution. And that sort of brings up what was my second point here is that, you know, although there are a lot more types of conduct that colleges and universities are responsible for responding to, there's a lot of flexibility for institutions in how they shape their responses. And there is kind of a sort of a dichotomy uh, between how institutions need to respond to allegations when the folks involved are all employees and when at least one of the parties, whether the complainant or the respondent, is a student. When we're talking about, you know, all parties being employees, these new uh, regulations would really fundamentally change how things are done under the current 2020 regulations. Under these current 2020 regulations, doesn't matter whether the sex discrimination that, that involves employees or students, they're all going to go through this kind of quasi-legal process that requires a live hearing. It's a very regulated process. You got the investigation, you've got the disclosure of the evidence, you got to wait 10 days for folks to respond to the evidence. Then you have to put together a final written report that they then have 10 days to respond to that. Then you have a live hearing, then potentially an appeal. Under the new regulations, if they're finalized in their current form, when we're talking about employees, the process is instead going to closely match up with the process that is required under Title VII. You're going to have to have an appropriate investigation, provide the individual with notice of the allegations against them, and provide them with information regarding what your investigation ultimately concluded. Additionally, um, you're going to be allowed to use the single investigator model. What do I mean by the single investigator model? Well, you know, in the Title VII world, when we're dealing with employees, right, normally you're going to have the director of HR who's going to get the allegation of harassment. That person is going to investigate it and make findings and determine whether sexual harassment occurred. And if so, how best to address that to make sure that it doesn't occur again. 
what the Department of Education's proposed regulations are saying is that is fine when we're talking about employees only with respect to Title IX. And that's a big difference from the current 2020 regulations because those regulations uh, prohibit the single investigator model and require institutions to have one party investigate and one party decide. And that's going to be a big difference under these new regulations, particularly when we're talking about situations where all of the parties involved are employees. Now, things are a little bit different when we're talking about allegations of sex-based harassment where either the person who is alleged to have committed the conduct or the person who's alleged to be the victim of that conduct is a student. In that situation, it's going to be a little bit different, but still institutions are going to have some flexibility as to how they approach it. They can have you know, an institution-driven process or an advisor-driven process. Well, what do I mean by that? It's probably helpful to kind of take a look at what this, the lay of the land is right now, what's required under the current 2020 regulations. Under the current 2020 regulations that are in place now, it, it is an advisor-driven process. That is that the institutions are required to have live hearings. The advisors are permitted to conduct direct cross-examination of students at those live hearings. And so it's very much an advisor-driven process. What the proposed regulations are saying is you can do that if you're comfortable with that. You're permitted to continue with that process. A lot of colleges, though, are probably going to want to get away from it because it's become very expensive for them because under that advisor-driven process, they actually have to provide advisors for all students involved in the process and potentially pay for those advisors if necessary, including potentially lawyers, um, although if they're not required to be lawyers, the advisors. So under the new proposed regulations, they're actually allowing um, institutions to have an institution-driven process, which would say that you, know, you can either conduct individual meetings with the parties involved, or you can have a live hearing at which all parties are present. Now, I will say in Pennsylvania, there's some case law from the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit saying that in Pennsylvania, as a matter of state law, you're going to have to have a live hearing. But in institutions located in other states, they might be permitted to have those individual meetings instead of a live hearing. Regardless of whether you have individual meetings or a live hearing that everyone participates, under the institution-driven process, you can have um, you can take away that direct cross-examination from the advisors and just allow each party to submit cross-examination questions in writing, and then have the institution actually ask the questions, um, which was a big criticism of the current process. Uh, they're saying that when you have cross-examination by advisors, a lot of folks felt that was unfair for folks who were alleging that they were victims of sexual assault because it kind of um, if folks knew that they were going to be subjected to cross-examination by an advisor who could be an attorney, they were less likely to report sexual assault. Under the regulations, again, institutions can continue with that advisor-driven process if they want to, but if they do that, the institution would have to allow the advisors to ask the questions, and if they do that, they must provide all parties with advisors as they're required to do under the current process. So a lot of detail there, but I think the overall framework is that there's a lot of flexibility for institutions in how they model 
their uh, program. But there's a lot of changes that are going on here. And as I said at the outset, one of the big things that these proposed regulations are going to require is they're going to require a lot of different types of training for institutions to implement. There's going to be a lot of training for all employees at the institutional level about specific things related to responding to different types of alleged sexual misconduct. Also for um, investigators, decision makers, and other persons involved in investigations, the informal resolution process, hearings or appeals, there's a whole set of different topics that they're going to have to be trained on as well. So there's going to be a lot of training that's going to be required from institutions. All right. So, so that was a, that was a great overview. And uh, I, I, I'm impressed that you managed to give us those highlights in in the short period of time you did, having skimmed through the 700 pages myself. What can institutions or what do institutions actually even need to do right now to prepare for the regulations or even participate in the regulatory process here? Great question. I think the first thing institutions need to know is, do they want to have a say in these regulations? If they have something in the regulations that they find truly objectionable or they feel has not been addressed, this is your opportunity to speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, The Department of Education is accepting comments to these regulations, uh, provided that they are submitted no later than September 12th. So what I recommend is that institutions reach out to their council, have a pretty frank discussion with their council about what's in the regulations, make a determination of whether they want to respond, uh, and you know have their council work with them on providing that response. Now, you know, you can respond to these proposed regulations that will do nothing but force the Department of Education to consider and respond to your response. And that doesn't mean they're going to they're going to agree with you, but they will at least explain why they do not agree with you. Now's the time to kind of get out and proactively speak with the relevant constituents at your college or university. You know, obviously your students Um, your student leadership organizations, your administration, your faculty, you're going to want to talk to them about where things stand. Because I think the thing that institutions really need to understand is that these regulations are not final yet, and they will not be final until at least, in my estimation, the end of the 2022-2023 academic year. So that means that we're stuck with the 2020 regulations for at least one more academic year. And that's going to create kind of a, a, a difficult no man's land for institutions, because there's been a lot of press about these regulations. A lot of student advocates and student rights organizations will know that there are going to be a new way of handling these types of cases moving forward. And they're going to want institutions to implement that right away. But institutions can't really do that because they're still stuck with the requirements of the 2020 regulations. So I think institutions would be well advised to go out there and start to have those conversations so that folks understand that that's what the landscape is. And also to get those individual's input regarding how the process is going to look once these regulations are finalized. I mean, I think it's safe to say that these regulations will be finalized in substantially the same form they are now. They're not going to be radically 
redone again. So now's a good time to start to figure out, you have all this institutional flexibility. How are we going to exercise it? What are our priorities with respect to this type of process? Uh, and how are we going, are we going to have an institution driven process? Are we going to have an advisor process? What do our students want? What do our faculty want? Get those folks together, have those conversations now so that when these regulations are finalized, you'll be ready to work with your council to develop and finalize your title nine policies. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dave, for, for agreeing to switch sides here and be yeah. interviewed on the podcast. Um, I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did as well. If any of those listeners have other questions for you, or if they want to be in touch with you as their counsel to talk about putting in some comments on the regulations, how can people be in touch with you? Certainly. You can catch me uh, uh, by email at dfriedman at barley.com. That's D-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N at barley.com. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Um, you can also uh, check out uh, my profile on the barley.com website. They'll have other ways to get in touch with me. But thank you so much for having me, Josh. This was great. Uh, it was my pleasure, and I'm sure our listeners' pleasure as well. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who took the time to listen and learn today. And just so everyone knows, we have a new schedule of podcasts coming throughout the next few months with guests from throughout our region and our own attorneys, perhaps some other guest uh, host attorneys as well, talking about some of the biggest legal challenges facing businesses in central Pennsylvania and beyond. If you want to stay up to date with our podcast schedule, Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. That'll also help you not miss any of our Barley Snyder client alerts, news, or webinars. Until next time, don't let the summer get away from you. Get out there and enjoy it before it's gone. Barley Snyder Legal Update Show.